everyone's going, uh, you do know it's Easter, right? Genesis? Maybe Genesis 3, right, for Easter? Genesis 3, the fall of man? Genesis 1. We'll be here just briefly. In fact, you may not even need to turn there because we're just going to look at one verse, which all of us probably have memorized. What does it say? Read it out loud. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just one. Just one verse. If you are last week, we started our series on Genesis. Eric started us off with Genesis 1.1. And this morning, I want to use that as a jumping point. And, and as a reference point, really, for what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, if you came for the traditional um, Sunday resurrection sermon, I'm sorry to disappoint. It'll be a little bit different, but I, but I hope it'll be good. A few weeks ago, I was preaching, as we're finishing up our, our Ephesians series, on the second section of Ephesians chapter 6, talking about slaves and masters. And in doing so, I brought up uh, the name of a man who is uh, pretty famous, and uh, his name's John Newton. You guys remember that name? Many of you probably already know John Newton, but just for those of you who, who don't know, uh, a brief history of John Newton. He grew up um, in a basically non-religious uh, home. There wasn't really any form of religion that was given to him other than, I guess, maybe atheism would be the closest. Um, grew up, and he, he was uh, a fairly independent child. Early on in his uh, well, teenage to early adulthood, he was uh, forced into the British Navy, and where he spent several years uh, being insolent. <laughs> um, he was not well-liked in the British Navy because he didn't like to obey. He didn't like authority over him. And eventually he got out of the British Navy and uh, joined on to a different type of ship, which was a slave ship. And, uh, and guess what? People didn't like him there either. <laughs> he was working on the slave ship for a few years, and eventually they left him <laughs> at port one day, and he actually became a slave himself of a slave trader there in Africa. And, uh, and so he has, he has a very interesting past, but uh, he was rescued eventually, and, uh, and while he was on the ship headed back towards England, uh, they had a, a storm, a very uh, near-fatal storm. And it opened his eyes to something greater than what he had been. And he began to read different religious texts. And he began to study the scripture and other things. And along that, (laughs) I say cruise, (laughs) along that voyage uh, back to England, he realized that the Bible was true. And he gave his life to God. And eventually, uh, he he still worked as a slave trader trader for many years until um, eventually he became an abolitionist. Um, But along the way, he continued to study, taught himself Greek and Hebrew, and eventually finally became an Anglican priest. But he's probably most well known for the words to a very familiar hymn. What is that? Amazing Grace. 
Amazing Grace. And, and if I can, I want to steal that title this morning as we look at Resurrection Sunday. As we think about everything that happened from the Lord's Supper, from the garden, to the trials, to the beatings, the suffering, the shedding of His blood on the cross, the burial, and then as we celebrate this morning, His resurrection and victory over death. And I want you to keep in mind that phrase, amazing grace, because this morning we're going to take a look at this amazing grace, possibly from a different perspective that you, than you have recently or, or ever. I want to, you know, a lot of times we sing these songs, and Andy did a great job going through Scripture this morning, and, and we a lot of times think about Easter Sunday in a very personal way. We think about it from our perspective, right? And is, is it wrong to do that? No, absolutely not. We need to think about that. We need to understand what Christ has done for us personally. In fact, hopefully, I'll bring that out even in the passage that we're looking at this morning as well. But then there's a purpose and a place for that. And, but that's what we tend to, tend to look at. We tend to gravitate towards what does this resurrection, what does the cross mean to us personally? And this morning, I want to take a different view. And the reason we're starting in Genesis... 1-1 is because I think it's important for us to look at Easter, to look at everything that surrounds it, not just from our perspective as believers in Jesus Christ, but from God's perspective. We need to see what God was thinking when he sent Jesus Christ to earth. And so I think that begins with understanding who God is. Uh, Eric laid the foundation of that last week in his sermon on Genesis 1-1. And I want to go back there briefly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the things that, that Eric pointed out to us was this proves, this shows us, this fact that God, in and of himself, all alone, created the heavens and the earth. He is eternal. He is outside of time. It says, in the beginning, right? In, in the beginning of time began when God created the heavens and the earth. He's outside of time. He's eternal. But another aspect of that is one that I think often we kind of just take for granted theologically. And, uh, and I think it's important that we understand this fact from Genesis 1-1 as we jump into um, why Christ came. As we understand what God's mindset was when he decided to redeem mankind. And so as we think about Genesis 1-1, we see in the beginning, God. And yes, he is eternal. He is before. He is outside of time. He is uh, powerful. He, he created the world. But to me, one of the greatest understandings of that verse is that he is the only God. He is the only God. And again, this is nothing new. If you've read your Bible, you've you've seen this over and over again. People have have spoken to Israel and, and, and proclaimed, the Lord our God is one, right? He's one God. He's the only God. There is only one God. We, we know this theologically, but do we let our theology, do we let our doctrine help us understand God's perspective when it comes to 
this Easter Sunday. And I hope as we look at the passages that we're going to look at this morning, you will see maybe Easter in in a slightly different light. God created the heavens and the earth. There is one God. He's the only one. And because he's the only one, he has no one, no overriding authority over him. There is nothing that tells God what to do. There is no one that tells God what to do. And as the only God, he has no equal. He has no peer. There's no one putting peer pressure on God to do something. He is his own. He is alone. He is God. And because he is God, he has the right to do his own will. He has the authority to do his own will. I like uh, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. It says, God is speaking through Isaiah. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. Pretty clear, right? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is the only God. He's not bound by any outside force or authority. As the only God, he inherently bears all authority. He inherently is the source of all knowledge. He inherently is deserving of all glory, and he inherently is the author of morality. And if we're to understand this thing that we call amazing grace, this this day that we come and celebrate that we call Easter, then we must understand the God who did it all and why he did it all. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be here for the rest of the the time this morning. As creator, God is also the full owner of his creation. He is fully deserving of its praise and obedience. But we need to understand who we're talking about when we say that God created the world. And Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, gives us some insight here into creation, gives us some insight into God's perspective on salvation, and then is a reminder to us of our current state. We'll start here in verse 15. We'll we'll read through verse 20, and then we'll come back and take a look at it. Colossians 1.15, he is the image, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And we'll stop there. We'll read the, the rest of it here in a few minutes. But let's go back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? He is the image of the invisible God. Well, I think John, if you remember way back a long time ago in John chapter 1, uh, verse 18, I think John makes it pretty clear. Obviously, he's been speaking about Christ. And in verse 14, we, we know that he's using the word to reference Christ. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. That seems to match, right? He's the image of what? The invisible God, right? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now that sounds a little confusing, so let's think about it here. No one has ever seen God, but then we know that he's talking about Jesus in this passage, right? So he switches, he's talking about God the Father, the, the invisible God, but then he says, the only God, he's referencing Christ, equating him with the Father, he is full deity, the only God who is at the Father's side, which we know from other scriptures, that's where Christ is. He has what? He has made him known. He is the image of the invisible God. Even in his earthly form, Jesus Christ was the perfect representation and presentation of God to man. By taking on flesh, he was able to make God known to man in a way that man had never experienced before. Have you thought about that? You know, I feel like a lot of times we, we tend to separate Jesus from the Father. And, and rightfully so in their persons within the Godhead. But do we really understand that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the representation of God. He is the way for man to know God. He came to earth and walked this earth and lived out among the people. And he was God. And men could see him and talk to him, were healed by him, believed in him. And he interacted with mankind so Jesus, the perfect presentation of God to man, but also he's the rightful heir of creation. What do, I mean? what do I mean? Let's look at that. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn, what does that mean? You know, a lot of times people would, will use that to um, twist scripture. And they'll say he's the firstborn of all creation. So that means he must have been created too, Right? Because the firstborn is the firstborn, right? It's, it's the first of many. And so if he's the firstborn of all creation, that he must be created too. Well, I don't think that's how Paul's using this here. Uh, see, in their culture, what was special about the firstborn? You tell me. I know you know it. What's special about the firstborn? Right, he had the birthright for inheritance, Right? 
Somebody else said it back here, but they didn't raise their hand, so, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> he, the, the firstborn was special. He, he had the inheritance, or at least he had usually the greater inheritance. Uh, other sons may have had inheritance as well, but, you know, you think of the parable that, that Christ gave of the prodigal son. You know, the firstborn had his inheritance, but the, the secondborn, he had an inheritance too. So sometimes that happened. But the firstborn had the right to the, the greater inheritance. He had the right to, to basically, a lot of times he would take over the, fa- the, the father's business or he would take over the father's land or things like that. So the, being the firstborn, was, uh, was, he was their heir. He was the one who would get everything. And so as I look at this passage, I see Christ not as created, and we're going to see that that's, Paul's going to put that to bed here in just a second, but he is the firstborn. He is the heir. He is the one for whom creation is. He is the one who owns creation as the firstborn, as the heir. Excuse me. Let's look at the next verse though. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, what did, that, what did the beginning of that say? For by him all things were created. Does that sound like he was created? No. Paul puts that argument to bed. So that's why I believe that this is the firstborn as in the air. But think about this. He is, he's not only owner of creation as the firstborn, he's the one who made it. He's the one who made it. We, we read in Genesis that God did this and God spoke this and, and all these things. We use this term of, for God you know, broadly and we tend to think of that as the Father. But who does Paul say is the one who created? Jesus. All things were created by him, for by him all things were created. And it's interesting, he, he, he says all things, but he kind of gives us some, some specifics here. He says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, right? That, now that's usually generally everything that we can think of, right? Heaven and earth, visible and invisible, that seems to run the gamut of everything. But I think it's interesting, uh, this will come out a little bit later on, but he brings up these authorities. All these authorities that we see were also created by God. What does he say? Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus was not only the heir, the owner of it. He is the one who created it. But not only did he create it, but it was created for him. Do you ever think about that? You know, we get so wrapped up in these short little lives that we run. We get so caught up in our selfishness and the things that we want. We get so caught up in in living life for me. And even, even when we're struggling and trying to live life for Christ, we still fail, we still fall. But have you ever thought about the fact that God didn't create you for you? That's a weird thought, isn't it? God didn't create you for you. 
He created all these things that he just talked about being created for him. Jesus is the rightful owner of creation. He, he not only is the heir, he not only is the creator, but it was created for him. It was his from the beginning. All that we see is Christ. We have to have a clear understanding of this if we're going to understand Easter. I don't have time this morning to go into all the verses that Scripture gives talking about why God does things, but it's very clear as you read through Scripture that God does everything He does for one reason. Well, He does it for multiple reasons, but the main reason is so that He would be glorified. Yes, does God love us? Absolutely. And does He do things out of His love? Absolutely. Scripture says that. But the main reason God does everything is for His glory. It was for Him. It was to show His own glory that He made creation perfect. It was for His glory that He made mankind as His image. He breathed into them the breath of life and man became a living soul. It was for His glory that He created all of this. It was for Him. Psalm 19, verse 1, there are many passages. I, I would encourage you to go through and just do a word study and, and just look at how many times God talks about the things that He does for His glory. Sometimes it'll be a phrase, something like, uh, for my name's sake or for my name. It's the same idea. He's doing all these things for His glory to make His name great. And He's the only one that deserves it. If we understand Genesis 1.1, we don't have a problem with that. If we understand the fact that God is the only God, that He is the only one that deserves glory and honor and praise and adoration, we don't have a problem with the fact that God created everything for Himself and for His glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. His creation was designed to glorify Him. God is self-sufficient. He had no need to create anything. Have you ever thought about that? God didn't need to create the world, but He wanted to because it would bring glory to Him. He chose to make this vast universe. He chose to make this beautiful earth and He chose to make you and me to proclaim His glory. Paul continues in verse 17, he says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He uses this idea of He is before, which again talks about His eternality. He, is, he existed, Christ existed before the world. He is God, He is deity. But I love this phrase, and it says, and in, all him, and in Him all things hold together. Think about that. Jesus Christ not only was instrumental in creation at the beginning in Genesis 1-1, but even now, He holds it together. 
Take it a step further. Even when he was in human form on earth, he was holding everything together. Isn't that amazing? And now, as he stands before the Father making intercession for us, he is holding everything together. Why? Why is he doing that? Because it's his. Because it is his, it is his glory that is on, at stake. He created it, and he holds it together. And now Paul moves into this concept of the body of Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ owns everything. He owns us by right of being creator. And yet, we are his in a different way as the body of Christ. We are his in a gracious way as the body of Christ. He is the owner because he is creator. He is owner because he is heir. He is the owner because he sustains it, but yet he is also the head of the body of Christ. Paul begins to take these theological concepts that are very um, general, and he begins now to apply it to us at a personal level. Those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, who are part of the body of Christ, he is our head. We talk about this a lot as elders here. We're not in charge of the church. We have a function and a role in the church of leadership, but the head of the church is not us. It's Christ. He is the head of the church. And Paul is going to help us understand why he is the head of the church. He continues on and he says, he is the beginning, again, talking about his eternality, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Now, a simple understanding of this statement, the firstborn from the dead, um, seems pretty clear. I mean, Jesus was the first one to rise from the grave in victory over sin and death and hell. And because he did that, those who believe in him, those who trust in him, they also have the same victory. We know that when we die, our body perishes, but our soul does not. And when we die, we are victorious over death. And eventually our body will also be victorious over death and be risen to join Christ in the air and will forever be with the Lord. And we have victory through Jesus Christ. That's very true. But we need to not just stop there because that's not the end of this phrase. And I think a lot of times we, we think about that part of it and we completely forget the next part. What does it say? It says, he is the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus is the eternal God. He was here before the world began, and, and as such, he deserves the glory and praise for it. Yet what we celebrate today, the fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, the fact that Jesus is risen, the fact that Jesus defeated sin and death and hell on this victorious resurrection day, that fact declares for all to see his rightful preeminence over all things. 
the one who is already eternally preeminent due to the fact that he is God, put his preeminence on full display when he rose in victory over the grave. Paul continues on. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was not simply a man. Do you remember that this morning? Jesus was not just some carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to become pregnant. He's unique. Because of that, he is fully man physically, but yet unlike us with unregenerate souls, he is God. He is 100% God, 100% man. We can't understand it, but it's true. And as such, he was able to walk this earth. He was able to go through the process from infant to toddler to child to, to young adult to a man and go through all of that never sinning one time because he's God. He's 100% and 100% man and 100% God. And because of that, he, because he's man, was able to pay the price for man's sin. The fullness, the fullness of the glory of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He was 100% God. And it's because of that fact, he was able to redeem us. Let's move on. For in, him, uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, on earth or in heaven. You know, usually when we think about Easter, we think about the resurrection, we think about all that Christ has done, we think really mostly about ourselves again, do we not? You know, God is not only concerned about redeeming men. Scripture tells us that since the fall, all creation is groaning, waiting to be redeemed. And it's interesting that Paul says here that for in, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, even though, yes, he has a personal relationship with us. Yes, John 3.16 makes it clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is deeply concerned with saving mankind. But he's also just as concerned with saving all of creation. Everything. The redemption process that Christ started on the cross that will end at the end of days when everything is fulfilled was not just for man. It was for all of creation. Everything. Christ came to redeem everything. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And he did so at great cost. He did so at great cost. Making peace 
by the blood of his cross. A few day, a couple days ago, we celebrated Good Friday. And it's a time for us to pause and solemnly consider the pain and the agony that Christ suffered. The separation from his father. The moment when he gave up his life through his shed blood on the cross. But Jesus did not suffer merely to give us freedom from sin and to give us eternal life. Yes, that's part of it. He suffered and bled and endured God's holy wrath and breathed his last breath so that he could reclaim what was rightfully his. What does that say? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus did die for your sins. I'm not saying that he didn't. But when we look at this from the perspective of God, when we understand the redemption process from the perspective of God, He, as the owner, the rightful heir of creation, who, in a sense, lost it when Adam and Eve sinned, and now, as we, as we just studied not long ago in Ephesians chapter 2, now everyone, all of mankind, is under the power and the authority of who? Satan, the devil. And we do only what he wants us to do until we are saved. That God who already owned everything sent Jesus Christ to the cross to endure everything that he endured to buy back what was rightfully his. Is that not amazing grace? that he would care enough to buy it back. We didn't read this part yet, but Paul goes a little bit deeper in personalizing it here in verse 21. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He points to the church now. Many, if not most of them, believers. And just like he did back in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, remember, remember what you were like before God redeemed you. He says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what we were. Because of our fallen nature, we were the enemies of God. We were apart from God. We were separated from God. And there's nothing that we could do about it. But not only did Christ redeem all of his creation, Paul personalizes it, and he says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death those who were alienated from him. It wasn't just all of creation. He did it for you, and he did it for me as well. 
John 3.16 tells us why. Because he loves us. This next phrase I think is really interesting. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did he do it for us personally? It's for his glory. It's for his glory. I think of, I look at this, these phrases here and I, I kind of think of a, a jeweler taking a diamond and he has this, probably not that big, he has this rough stone, jagged edges and, and it's just, you know, wasn't long ago it was coal. And he takes this stone and he works with it. And he, and he has an idea of what he wants it to look like and he works it and he works it and he, and he creates these fine points and edges and, and he's constantly looking at it and, and finally he finishes it and he puts it in a setting in a ring and he holds it up to the light and lets it sparkle and shine and he admires his handiwork. And I think about Christ doing that with us. Why did he redeem Mankind. He did it all for us, yes, because he loves us. But equally as important, he did it so that he could present his handiwork of redemption of a sinner being made pure to himself and to the Father. It all comes back to his glory. Everything about Easter is for God's glory. Verse 23 is sobering. Paul continues the thought by saying, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says, if you indeed continue in this faith, this gospel that you uh, have been preached, has been preached to you, Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. I don't know everyone here. I don't know where you're at spiritually. Maybe you've heard this story many times of Jesus coming to earth, dying on a cross, being buried, raising from the dead. Maybe you know it. Maybe you've never heard it. But yet you've never followed the call to turn in repentance from your sinful way of life, to turn to Jesus Christ, believing in what he has done for you, seeking to follow after him. If that's you this morning, I would ask you to seriously consider what Christ has done for you. If you have questions, certainly many here could answer. But I would encourage you. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. We don't know how long we have. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, the free gift that he's given through his death, his shed blood on the cross, come to him today. Perhaps you're already a part of the body of Christ this morning, but maybe you've taken for granted the fact that Christ died for you. You say, this is Easter. How can I take for granted what Christ has done on Easter? I mean, of all the days of the year, this is the one that we really celebrate that. And yet, so often we can pervert it in our own mind. Maybe we've been saved for many years and, and in some sense we feel like, you know, at this point, really, I probably deserved it, honestly. You know, 
I've been a good Christian. You know, I deserve to be saved. And we may never verbalize that, but that might be how we live. We might live a life that apart from Easter, we don't think about the cross. We don't think about what Jesus Christ has done for us by showing us before the Father an unregenerate sinner, pure and holy with his righteousness. When's the last time you really thought about that? Besides this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to take a minute and give the glory for your salvation back to the one who deserves it. It's all because of Christ. This great God in Genesis 1-1 who created the world for His glory had every right to destroy everything when Adam and Eve sinned. If He had done so, He would have been morally right because He is the only God with no outside authority or equal that is uh, the author of... He's the author of morality based on His own choices. This God though he could have done all those things, chose to rescue fallen man. You and me. Because in doing so, he receives even greater glory. Not just as the God who created, but as the God who redeems. When we truly come to grips with these truths in Genesis 1, to think that God would allow us to partake in this glorious redemption gives us a deeper appreciation and understanding of just how amazing that grace is.